want to do a study in uh, some of these themes in the Gospel of John. And I'm in chapter 2. I want to deal with chapter 2 tonight. And you need your Bible. It's so important on Sunday night to bring your Bible. We study God's Word together. And how wonderful and marvelous have been our Sunday night uh, crowds. And I'm convinced it's because we have come to study the Word of God together. It's just different than on Sunday morning. And I think it helps to be able to touch both the, perhaps the uh, mind and the heart on Sunday, the heart a little more on Sunday morning, and the mind perhaps a little more on Sunday night. John in the 20th chapter, uh, beginning in, in verses 30 and 31, tells us why he wrote the book that is now the Gospel of John. He wanted to prove or to show evidence or proof that Jesus was the Son of God. He was very desirous to show that this Christ, this historical Jesus, was the anointed Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And the method he used was to record some selected miracles that Jesus performed that he called signs. And he would take these miracles and, and, and these signs that Jesus performed and he put them all together in this gospel. Miracles that Jesus did while he was alive on earth. And that explains why we find what we find in the second chapter these three incidents that are there because you'll not find these three incidents anywhere else in any other gospel. Now in a little bit when you realize that one of them is the cleansing of the temple, you'll say, well now he did, we do have that in other gospels, but the cleansing of the temple that, are in the, that is in the other Gospels is a cleansing of the temple that took place in the last week of the life of Jesus, His earthly ministry. And this cleansing that He talks about here takes place in the first week of His earthly ministry. And you'll not find these incidents anywhere else in any other Gospel account. The second chapter begins with the words, and on the third day. What third day is he talking about? And so it kind of becomes necessary for us to give a little bit of an outline, at least a chronological and analytical outline of the second chapter of John. Um, the um, third day that he's talking about, we need to get a little frame reference, time frame reference for that. And so if you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, you'll find really the beginning of the events that are recorded in the Gospel of John. It is really the beginning of the record of this great uh, Gospel. Now verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1 makes up the prologue. And the prologue of the Gospel of John is not really the, a record of, of the events of Jesus, but is really this great theological statement, one of the most profound statements ever found concerning 
the deity of Christ, God's own Son, the Messiah, the Anointed. And then he comes to verse 19 to begin the events that are found, the chronological events that are going to be found in this Gospel of John. So that beginning at verse 19, the first day of the life of the ministry of Jesus, and then in verse 29, he begins the second day, and in verse 35, he starts the third day of his ministry, and, verse, and, and the fourth day starts with verse 43 and goes all the way to the end of the first chapter. So that the third day that he's talking about in chapter 2 refers to three days after the fourth day that is in chapter 1, the seventh day in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now there are three main incidents in the second chapter of the Gospel of John that are joined together by transitional verses or sentences. I think we need to remember that what this gospel account is, is not a diary that, that John wrote as it happened and then it was put into the Bible. It's not like that at all. I used to think that's what the gospels were like. It was like this man who was just recording the events as they happened as a diary and then it one day was all compiled and put together in the Bible. Not at all. The Gospel of John was written 60 years after it actually happened. This event that is described in the Gospel of John takes place in A.D. 30. And the Gospel of John was written in A.D. 90. So it took, takes place 60 years after it actually happened. And so you'll find these events, these incidents, that are joined together with these transitional sentences. And really, uh, John is filling in the blanks and he's kind of interpreting in these transitional sentences what is actually happening as the Holy Spirit Spirit brings to his mind as he remembers it, you see. Now there are three main events in chapter 2. The turning of water into wine, the cleansing of the temple, and this tremendous statement that Jesus made concerning destroy this temple and I'll resurrect it, I'll raise it, I'll build it up again on, in, in three days, this three-day building program that he was talking about. Now in your outline that you have, we're uh, understanding the issues and I want you to follow very carefully. I want to show you something out of this second chapter. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now I'm absolutely certain or convinced that this wedding was either a wedding of a sister of Jesus or it was the wedding of a very close personal friend because of the dominant role that the mother of Jesus plays here. It's very unusual. Now Joseph, the father, earthly father of Jesus is dead and they come to this wedding in the Cana of Galilee and, and, and the mother of Jesus is, has a dominant role in this. This obviously at least was the wedding of some very close personal friend. Now the weddings in that day are total, were totally different than the weddings in our day. 
I suppose there's not a week passes and I don't have some weddings. Now Betty's over there laughing because we had the weirdest wedding in our, in a, in a, in a, here the other day and, and, and it's kind of hard to, to, to try to, you know, to go in there in my office to perform this wedding and, and the secretary's out in the other office and they're just breaking up laughing. But it, we have some, some, some unusual things happen here. For pe people come over from Texas they're kind of weird over there anyway, they tell me. And they come over from Texas and they want to get married. I perform two or three weddings a week, you know. And uh, we, you know, it's no big deal to, you know, to, to uh, have, a, have four or five a week. We have them in my office in the chapel. We come in here. We've had them everywhere over this church. And, uh, and, and you know, and, and for, for those people, it's very special events, you can tell. You know, I performed the wedding not long ago of a 91-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman. My, uh, Joanne buzzed me and said, there's a couple out here who wants to get married. I stepped in there, I saw them sitting over on the couch. First thing I thought of, and I said it, just kind of blurted out, blurted out, I said, does your mother and daddy know that you're here to get married? I mean, he was, <laughs> he was 91 and she was 89. Well, it was a very special event. He told me, he said, now I want to marry her because she's a good cook. It's literally true. He said, man, she's a good cook. But sometimes we have some pretty elaborate weddings. I wasn't here for the wedding of the Heaths, but I, he, uh, uh, Shelley and David Wright, uh, here it was a beautiful and marvelous thing. And so in between a kind of a formal wedding like that and this weird thing we had the other day, you know, all in between there are these weddings. It's not like that. It wasn't like that in the first century. As a matter of fact, the parents chose the spouse most of the time. That'll bless you. How would you like that? You come in, your mother says, I've got him picked out for you. We're ready to get married. They did all the, they did all the arranging, even the choice of the spouse. And they, 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 they went through a period of engagement that lasted, about a, a, lasted a year, and it was a binding and legal engagement called a betrothal. And you couldn't get out of that without a divorcement. You had to get a bill of divorcement, just like you were married, but you couldn't live together as husband and wife. And at the end of the betrothal, at the end of the engagement, they had this great celebration. They usually came at night. The bridegroom came to the house of his bride to, to, to take her to his house. And he, you, they usually came at night and there was this long procession of torch bearers and there was singing. It was a time of celebration. And, they, and he took his bride back home with him for a, for a celebration that lasted sometimes as long as a week. And all of the neighborhood was invited. All the friends and the whole town came. And they just moved in for a week. And, and, and I want to show you in just a minute sometimes how many guests there would be at one of these weddings. But here was this one-room house that was divided and this, these people just moving in for a whole week. And the host of that wedding was responsible for all the people to care for them and to provide for them. And if they didn't really you know, plan it ahead of time, things could get a little touchy. I read somewhere that if the host didn't provide for the celebration and, and didn't have ample uh, food and, and, and drink, they could be sued. A wedding feast was, a, was the greatest social event of a lifetime. Now, if you could put together the Super Bowl and the Republican and Democratic Convention and the Olympics 
and your senior prom and that goat roping they had over at Calera last Saturday night, you could put all those social events together in one lump sum. You get the picture here. It was the celebration of a lifetime. And these poor people lived, you know, in this poverty and nothing to do and no way to celebrate. No, so they just, they just had a celebration for a week. Right in the midst of the celebration, the wine gave out. Now notice verse four. And Jesus said to his mother, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, now it sounds like that Jesus responded very you know, harshly and coldly. He responded to the way she addressed him. Watch this. For Jesus understood now that he was no longer living under her authority as a son. She was going to have to relate to him in a different way from now on. Now this was the way she was going to, did she catch it? Watch. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, now folks, let me say parenthetically, that's the way everybody, including the mother of Jesus, is to relate to Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's the absolute authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, now watch. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. Now let's just suppose, let's cut it in half. Say there's 25, they held 25 gallons. There were six of them. That's 150 gallons. And if you gave a serving, you know, to somebody, a half pint serving, you know, um, that means that they must have had at least, there was at least 2,400 servings. If that thing lasted for a week, there was at the least 100 people that had just moved in there for a week. To stay there, you see. And Jesus said, fill the water pots with water and they fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, did not know where it came from, but that the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you've kept the best, the good wine, until now. Now, th now there is this transitional sentence that John is now kind of interpreting what is happening. Watch this, he said. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I've not made any home brew <laughs> or, or wine. I had a guy in school I went to school with. He's always making this wine, you know, bringing it in a hip pocket to school. It uh, didn't taste any of it, but my friend said it made your ears ring every time you just took a little nip of that. But I, I do know that in order to have wine, you've got to have two things. You've got to have grapes and you've got to have time. Jesus had neither. It was a chemical impossibility for that water to be turned to wine. And so a miracle happened and the water was turned to wine. Now I want to give you the real issue and you've got to hang on to this because that's where we are, what we're going to deal with tonight. The real issue is this. The real issue is not the turning of water to wine. 
Now, I've heard some preachers spend 30 minutes on, you know, whether or not that was literal, you know, literal wine, you know, talking about drinking, using this as a proof text for, you know, not to drink. That's absolutely the goofiest interpretation of this you can get. That's not the real issue. The real issue is not the turning of water to wine. The real issue is that this event became just another occasion to display the glory of God. Now, if you want to look over to chapter 1, verse 14, he said, And we beheld him, and the glory of God, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And they stood there and watched as this water turned to wine, and they beheld the glory of God. And they said, while we were looking at that water turned to wine, we were looking at God himself. Now the real issue is this, that every experience in your life, are you, are you listening? the most disastrous experience in your life, the greatest failure in your life, the greatest problem in your life can be an occasion to manifest the glory of God if you just let Jesus do what he can do. Now most of the time, we come to these experiences like this and, we, you know, and the, wine, the, wine, the wine runs out and we just you know, we wring our hands, oh, what are we gonna do now, what are we gonna do now? Well, every experience of your life, the most disastrous thing that can ever happen to you can just be an occasion for the glory of God. That's what kind of God we have. All right? Coins in the temple. Look at this verse 13. Let's, let's move on. Hang in there. Now, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's the transitional sentence. Now, the Passover was the, was the greatest Jewish festival. It, it commemorated the Passover of the death angel. You remember the story and the deliverance of God's people from Egyptian bondage. But by the first century, it had gone through so many changes that you could hardly even, you could hardly even recognize the Passover. In fact, when Jesus refers to the Passover in other places in the gospel, he talks about the Pharisees' Passover. I mean, it was not even the Jewish Passover. He couldn't even recognize it. And there was this high priest by the name of Annas, and he literally developed a, a, a complete ripoff from the Passover. This is how he did it. On the first, in the, in the time of the Passover, every male Jew, money. You guessed it. He had this rip-off going. You gave a dollar and he gave you 75 cents back, you know, in, 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 in changing your money into Jewish money, keeping 25 cents for himself. And besides all that, you had to pay this tax and it was an exorbitant tax. It was a drag. It was a drain. And these Jews were required to bring their animals to sacrifice them. In, in the, in the uh, temple for the Passover celebration. And they wouldn't drag an animal over 20 miles and so Annas knew that and he had all these animals corralled in the temple. I mean, he had sheep and oxen and he had uh, doves in little pens. He had, you know, it was called Annas Bazaar. It was a place, this place of worship had become nothing more than a mercenary, mer merchandising, money-grabbing ripoff. 
And when Jesus saw it, he was moved by it. And the scripture says in verse 15 that he made a scourge out of the cards that had been binding these animals that were there in the, in the, in the corrals. And he drove the people out and the money changers. And the disciples, when they saw it, verse 15 says, they remembered Psalm 69 where it says that the zeal for thy house has consumed me. Now, what is the real issue here? I'm going to tie it all together so you've got to hang in here. What is the real issue? If the first real issue was the glory of God, the second real issue is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. I mean, God has a zeal for His house. And He saw it corrupted and polluted. And He drove out those who were corrupting His house, His sanctuary. Now, where is the sanctuary of God? You say, well, we're in the sanctuary. No, we're not in the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. We say we come to, the, to God's house to meet God. No, you don't come to meet God here. You bring Him with you. Because God indwells you, the sanctuary. I want to show you something. Nobody, nobody... Forget, don't, don't hang loose on me. Don't, don't fail to do this. I want you to turn everybody to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I will show you something. I read this one time in a small group of disciples, that, the men that were studying with me out in a little church in uh, West Texas and got a hold of something that changed my life. Look at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3. He says, well, there's some of you still turning, so I'm going to give you time to find it. I want you to look at it. I, want you, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to find it too. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know? You know it, don't you? You know this, don't you? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys, now that word, you need to look that word up sometime in your Greek lexicon. It, it, it does not mean tear down or wreck with a wrecking ball. It means to pollute or to corrupt. If any man destroys, corrupts, pollutes the temple of God, God will pollute or corrupt him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Oh. Now folks, what do you have corralled here in this temple? I mean, these little animals that you've got corralled here in the temple called the temple of God. You are the temple of God. What do you have corralled? What kind of habits do you have corralled here? What kind of stuff are you putting in your mind? Now, I've been here four years. This Sunday gives me license to say what I'm fixing to say. I mean, I think I've earned my, my spurs. I, I've never said a word in this pulpit you know, against certain things. I don't get up here and speak against alcohol or tobacco, those kinds of things. 
but I am right now. And I'm going to say what this scripture says, that if you corrupt and pollute this temple of God, it burns him up. And that construction is that you will, he will allow you to be corrupted in that corruption. Oh, how, how intense and serious we ought to be about the holiness of this temple. Nothing goes in it by mouth or by eyes or by ears that pollutes it. Augustine used to say, Oh, Augustine, dost thou not know that you're carrying God around with you? Now the real issue is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Now, why is it that you resist Him when He tries to cleanse you? Why is it that you resist Him when He takes this scourge of cards and tries to cleanse you and purify the temple that He dwells in? Why do you resist that? Why did you get angry when I mentioned right there those very words? Third thing, third incident has to do with signs, verse 18. And the Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Paul says that the Jews sought after signs. He said, Show us this and we'll believe you. And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about this temple. They thought he's talking about the Jewish temple. He, he just got through talking about the holy, the, the temple of God. He said, Destroy this temple. In fact, he says, John adds this little transitional sentence and interprets it. It says in verse, He was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. When, when the disciples saw him raised from the dead, John writing 60 years later said when they saw that they believed what Jesus was talking about over there, right there on the fourth day after the, the third day after the fourth day of his earthly ministry and they believed what Jesus said. Now, with your thumb in the place, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And looking at verse 3, it says, Romans 1 verse 3 says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Now he's saying, now this Jesus was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh. He was of the lineage of David fleshly lineage of David, he was declared, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, what is the issue? The real issue is the power of God. Now, if the first real issue 
was the glory of God. And the second real issue was the holiness of God. The third real issue in this, this chapter is the power of God. And he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power when God raised him from the dead. Now, does Jesus, answer me, does Jesus have power over sin? Yes or no? Well, you're absolutely convinced on it. I mean, two of you are. Does Jesus have power over sin? Does Jesus have power over Satan? Yes. Does Jesus have power over death? Yes. Does Jesus have power over worry? Yes. Does he have power over problems? Yes. Then so do you. Then so do you. Because we are identified with Jesus in his resurrection. In fact, the apostle Paul says that just as Jesus was raised out of death, just as he was raised, we with him have been raised. So we are possessors of like power. Now I wanna apply all this and I got five minutes and I'll do it in one minute. I wanna apply it. This is the application. You got it on the place there, it's on the back. Applying the truth. Our most desperate need, our most desperate need is to become obsessed and occupied with Jesus Christ. Quit looking at the miracles and become occupied with Jesus Christ. So preoccupied with Christ that he becomes the focal point of all we do. He becomes the focal point of our unity so that we're lost in wonder, love, and praise when we focus on him. It's what Tozer calls the gaze of the soul upon God. I think Tozer was the one who gave the illustration of the uh, tuning fork. He said, you know how to tune a hundred pianos till, till they sound exactly the same? Use one, one and the same tuning fork. Isn't that amazing? If you try to tune a piano to itself, you know, you had a hundred pianos in here, you're going to try to tune one piano to the other piano. You never would get them tuned. But if you tune all the pianos to one tuning fork, they all sound the same. So preoccupied with Jesus Christ that all of us are in absolute oneness of fellowship and unity because we're all tuned to the same one. He becomes the focal point of all we do. That's the main issue. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the fact that there is so much truth in your word that we have never seen before. And I thank you that it just keeps on coming out, just oozing out of every pore and every parchment to bless us and to teach us and to give us life because we know that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And I pray, God, that we'll deal with real issues now concerning 
the glory of God, the holiness of God, and the power of God. And if there are just personal decisions that we need to make tonight, He'll give us courage and grace and strength to do that. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, would you stand? We have three invitations. Stand up. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He wants to save you. He wants to take away all your sin and put your name in His book and take you to heaven. He wants to come into your life and make you new. He wants you to come and be saved. The other invitations have to do with Christians. Christians who need to rededicate themselves to God. Need to deal with this matter of personal holiness in their life. and Power, the lack of it. The inability to find occasions to give God glory even in adversity. Or maybe you need to join the church. You're a college student. You're here and you're ready to go to school and ready to help, help us in our church. We'd love to have you. This is the place where college students come. That's the truth. We want you to know we love you and we minister to you. Come and join us. While we sing our invitation, you come right away. Come on the first word.